Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Acts 5, beginning in verse 12, says, Now many signs and wonders were done among the people through the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Yet more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, great numbers of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats in order that Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he came by. A great number of people would also gather from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all cured. Then the high priest took action. He and all who were with him, that is the sect of the Sadducees, being filled with jealousy, arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and tell the people the whole message about this life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and went on with their teaching. When the high priest and those with him arrived, they called together the council and the whole body of the elders of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the temple police went there, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were perplexed about them, wondering what might be going on. Then someone arrived and announced, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the temple police and brought them, but without violence, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. When they had brought them, they had them stand before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled with Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than human authority. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior, that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. This is the word of the Lord. The phrase that captured my imagination as we continue this series on Acts, my name is Pastor Ian Graham. Hello, it's so good to be with you today. But the phrase that captured my imagination from this teaching text today was found in Acts chapter 5 in verse 29. It says, we must obey God rather than any human authority. And this conviction creates a tension. And we've seen this tension play out really in our society over the last several months during the pandemic. I mean, perhaps you've seen pastors on TV saying, no matter what, we will not close the church. No matter what, we're going to meet together for worship, even if the suggestions of public health officials are saying that perhaps the worst thing you can do is gather in a room and have church as normal. And for many people, this created attention, a sense of unknowing, not knowing what to do. And we've seen that people have tried, you know, in 
ways to be faithful to this impulse that we must obey God rather than human authority. But maybe, perhaps, without always exercising a measure of compassion or wisdom. Now, as we learn about the pandemic and the way we've responded, like we're, we're uncovering more information. But to me, even if you had this conviction, and I, I did not share this conviction that said we must meet no matter what, that we must push through. I, I, you know, I think the church is embodied full and full. And I think God might have been trying to teach the church in America more broadly a lot of things about t- by taking away our ability to meet. And again, I don't think God causes global pandemics. That's not my uh, theological construct. But at the same time, I think God uses events that happen in our world, whether they be the events of natural circumstances, to, to uh, prune and to guide his church. And I think one of the things that might be going on here is that we as the church have to ask What does it mean for us to meet together? And as I look at a lot of the responses that were uh, kind of flying in the face of the wisdom of public health, that we're saying we're going to meet no matter what, the thing that I kept coming back to is that's fine if you feel that way, but why do you feel the need to be so John Wayne, I'm going to do this no matter what? How does that in any way embody the Spirit of Christ? And so, for many of us, this tension has been there. But there's also this other side. And I think this is the part that for for a lot of us, especially I think Christians in, in my generation, I'm about 36, I think sometimes we overestimate the level of friendship that we can have with the world. We overestimate how we can sort of accommodate our lives as they are to the overall patterns and culture of the world. Jesus says to his followers in John 15, he says, If the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, servants are not greater than their master. If they persecuted you, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And I think about the promise of Jesus that because we follow a Jesus who was persecuted, a Jesus who was rejected, that at some level that will be our story. And I look at my own life and I look at what it means for me to follow Jesus and there's not always this profound and dissonant tension with the world. And so, you kind of see these two different outcomes. Should I be flying in the face of everything, saying we're going to be the church that I think we should be no matter what? And, or should I have this easy sort of accommodated life where my life as a Christian, a follower of the way of Jesus, easily folds into the larger culture of the world to where there's no friction there? We must obey God rather than human authority. I think this is a fascinating passage, and I want to unpack it just a little bit for us today. And I want to, want to uh, talk about how Peter responds. You see, we saw in our text that Peter and the apostles have been arrested. They've been arrested for teaching in the name of Jesus. And we see Peter's response. He says, we must obey God rather than human authority. And then he goes on, and he just tells the story. And I think, don't miss the significance of this in the book of Acts. So often, 
the, the apostles' response and the earliest church's response to tension, so often the, the, the apostle and the earliest church's response to uh, questions is simply to tell the story of God's salvation as it's been worked out over the long haul. Peter does that ever so briefly here. But we'll see in the sermon that Stephen offers, in the earliest sermon that Peter offers back in Acts 2, in the, some of the sermons that Paul will later offer, is that they're narrating the story of Israel narrating it and then culminating it with Jesus as Messiah, culminating with Jesus as the focal point of that story. And look at what Peter says here in Acts 5, verse 30. He tells the officials who have said, you cannot teach in the name of Jesus. He says, the God of our ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. And to sit at the right hand of God was the place of honor, the place of authority. And this is where we see Jesus ascended in Acts 1. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. It's a beautiful testimony that Peter offers as he's standing in very real danger. But remember, we read the story. Peter is not somehow this superhero of courage. Uh, We've seen Peter respond very poorly throughout his life, and yet something has happened to Peter. The Holy Spirit has come upon Peter and empowered him to be a witness as Jesus promised that he would. And Peter is is constantly experiencing the powerful, manifest presence of God. And we see this so viscerally in this chapter. Peter and the apostles were arrested for teaching in the name of Jesus. And as they're sitting in prison during the night, an angel comes to them and says, Get up, go right back to where they took you from and teach the whole message about this life. I love that challenge. I love that instruction. So Peter and the apostles, as the temple doors are opened at daybreak, march right back into the temple and begin to proclaim again that Jesus is the Messiah, the awaited, anointed king, the one that Israel has been longing for. And so Peter stands in front of these officials and he says to them, we must obey God rather than any human authority. Now, I just want to offer a quick summary of the story arc. Peter and the apostles have been proclaiming this good news about Jesus. And that proclamation has become worrisome to the establishment. In this case, it's the religious leaders because it is threatening to the status quo. You have to understand kind of the power hierarchy that was present in the days of the earliest church. Acts 5 identifies the Sadducees. The Sadducees, whom Peter stands trial before, were those who had most thoroughly compromised with the Romans. The Romans would appoint kings of Jerusalem. And now, Romans didn't share their power. They let other people exercise a modicum of authority. But the Romans were the ultimate authority. And Rome would offer the right to people, whether they be governors or kings of small little kingdoms, for them to to have a measure of power. But the ultimate authority was Rome. And we see this with the Herods throughout the Gospels, uh, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We also see this in Acts. These, These Herods are identified as kings, and they're kind of puppet kings at a level. 
you know, Queen of England kind of situation. They don't have a lot of real authority. They have a little bit of authority. And so Peter and the apostles stand trial before the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the ones who had, uh, you know, been given power to control the temple. The temple, where the earliest church was first meeting, was the most powerful symbol, physical symbol, of the life of Israel. The temple represented proper worship of God. The temple represented that Israel was not like the pagan nations that surrounded them in the Roman Empire. Their temple featured no image of a God, going back to the commandments that were given to Moses. No image, because every person is made in the image of God. We are all icons and temples. And so the temple was the place where heaven and earth intersected. And the Sadducees through the exercise of Roman power, had been given control and sway. They were the party from from which the, the high priest was chosen and elected. And the Sadducees knew that talk of a Messiah, talk of a figure that was the rightful king of Israel, was a disruption to their very nicely arranged agreement between them and the Romans. Because talk of a Messiah meant a disruption of the status quo. And Peter and the apostles are not just talking about a Messiah. They are doing powerful signs and wonders in the name of this Messiah. And the crowds are responding. Even though, as we saw in Acts 5, there's a lot of fear associated with joining with the apostles. People are seeing what is happening in the name of Jesus. And their teaching is gaining traction. And the Sadducees see this. And there's a measure, as Acts 5 tells us, of jealousy, but also of fear. That their agreement with the Romans will be put in peril. And so, measuring their small amount of authority, exercising it, they put the apostles in a a prison that they have control over. But in the night, as we saw, God's power is manifest. And we'll see this happen again in Acts Where human authorities lock doors, God simply unlocks them. He makes a way for the apostles and sends them right back to their task of proclaiming the good news about Jesus. And this is such a beautiful theme in the book of Acts. Is that throughout the book, leaders and authorities, things will happen to the church. But it's the way that the church responds that is the important thing for us to, to see as a witness. No matter what happens to the church, the Acts describes them. Luke, writing, describes the church as proclaiming the good news about Jesus. Wherever they're scattered, wherever they go, they continue to proclaim this message. In fact, Acts makes the point, and it's such a, a point that we need to receive in our own day. The only thing that can hinder God's gospel of being proclaimed, the only thing that can hinder the compelling and beautiful truth about Jesus being proclaimed to the nations is the people of God themselves. There is nothing that can stop this message, this gospel message, other than fear amongst the people of God, other than quarreling amongst the people of God, other than a refusal to go to people whom we think maybe God has not chosen, whom we think that God's story, his story of salvation is not for. Those are the only things that can stop the message. And yet God's spirit is steadfast in pursuing others, steadfast in pushing us and trying to empower us to be bold and courageous. And so an angel comes and unlocks the door. 
And the leaders of the temple again bring Peter and the apostles before them and order them to stop teaching in the name of Jesus. In the early chapters of Acts, we see this profound shift. Peter has become a man empowered by God. And he says, we must obey God rather than human authority. Now, how does this land for us today? What does this mean in our world? Are we just simply to look at the governmental authorities and constantly be in friction and conflict with them? Well, maybe. You know, one of the things we see in Acts is that the church never seeks out conflict with the state. But conflict with the state inevitably comes because of the church's faithful witness to Jesus. The church doesn't have to go looking for fights. Look at what they're doing in Acts 5. The apostles are simply proclaiming the name of Jesus, healing people, and casting out unclean spirits. And that is enough to draw the ire of the local authorities. So do we need to be in conflict with the state? Well, does our life following Jesus eventually result in this kind of conflict. But we also, we don't just live in a world that has political or state-sanctioned authorities. We live in a world with a lot of competing human authorities. You know, there's just this pressure to be on the right side of history. You know, there's this social and cultural pressure to have the right opinions. Those are authorities. You know, and as much as something like... uh, I even hesitate to use this phrase because I know how it's been weaponized and become this kind of weird political signal. But, but you've seen people on the internet be canceled. And again, I want to say some people get canceled because they have really terrible opinions and they probably need to, to have some measure of social pressure to at least examine those opinions. But we've also seen this go in really, really ugly ways. Where sort of a, a, a faceless mob of Twitter eggs comes for people and really threatens their livelihood. So there's, there's a tension there. We, we, but I, I say all that to illustrate that there are other authorities than official authorities. And this is a double-edged sword. Again, we've seen the power of people telling their story which is a really powerful thing. But we've also seen that there can be this dark side to this, uh, this kind of bloodlust for a, for a justice that is you know, kind of mob-oriented can become something other than justice itself. So those are authorities. We have political authorities. We have cultural authorities. Charles Taylor, in his seminal work, A Secular Age, has dubbed our era of Western culture the Age of Authenticity. Creating an identity and living from a place of genuine identity, of authentic expression, is the highest value in our Western culture. And so you can see, to, you know, the, the cultural impulse, the cultural value that is held in highest regard is for people to live their truth. And ultimately, what this expresses is that the ultimate authority in our culture is human authority. Again, the age of authenticity says that humanity, that man is the measure of all things, that humanity is the one who starts and moves the story along, that we have to live and express our truth without regard to the place that we live, without regard to the responsibilities that we have. Live your truth. Taylor also talks about, as he talks about the age of authenticity, a requisite rise in anxiety. 
Because when all the pressure is on you to form and craft an identity, basically ex nihilo, out of nothing, that creates a lot of pressure. Uh, when we have, feel this need to find ourselves and to express ourselves and for that to be the ultimate good, this creates a lot of tension. You know, the ancients understood their identity as defined by place, by people, by family, extended family, by town, by, by sort of kinship relationships, by the, 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 the era in which they lived. And for us, we're told that we can start from zero, that nobody has, has had a history that was preceded them. You know, this is the point of the new Star Wars movies. You know, whereas the old Star Wars movies were about taking your place in this story that has preceded you, you know, the, the, the kind of result of the newer trilogy of the Star Wars movies that nothing that happened in the past matters. It doesn't matter that you, um, you know, have this legacy and this history. You need to step into your own identity that you've built. And, and again, not everything is bad in this impulse. And I want to say that. I think sometimes when we're just kind of painting culture, it can sound as if we're saying that is that there's darkness, only darkness over there. I'm not saying that. Culture is what it is at some level. And, and part of Jesus's revealing of the, the cultural powers in our day is just unmasking and just showing us that the air that we breathe and the, you know, the relative water that we swim in. And so Charles Taylor talks about a requisite rise in anxiety because of feeling this exhausting pressure to create and live out an identity, an identity that we often feel this tension within ourselves of trying to achieve. And what I want you to see today, as we look at this text, we must obey God rather than human authority is that first of all, God's power flows to set people free. We see this in the book of Acts frequently, is that when God's Spirit is poured out, there is liberty. The first manifestation of the Spirit is that people are free to hear the wonders of God in their own language. And then we see Peter and the apostles repeating and recapitulating the patterns of Jesus as Jesus came to the earth, healing and casting out demons. Now Peter and the earliest church are empowered to do the same. God's power, His presence flows so that people would be set free. An angel unlocks the prison doors and says, Go, tell the whole story about this life. It is for freedom that God has set us free. And what Acts is calling us to is to live a life in the freedom of God's Spirit, the freedom of God's authority. When Jesus is proclaimed as Messiah and Lord, when we tell the good news of the story of what Jesus has done, people are set free. When we are witnesses to what Jesus has done, the beauty and the power of the name of Jesus fulfills the very purpose for which Jesus himself said that he came in Luke chapter 4, that I have come to set the captives free. Jesus draws near to us in order that he might bring his powerful liberty into our lives. It is for freedom that he has set us free. And when we see Jesus exercising this freedom, we see him, you know, Jesus was the freest person who ever lived. And I think sometimes we miss this because Jesus 
didn't feel the need to construct an identity. Jesus' identity was received from the very beginning. If you go back to the very beginning of the Gospels, specifically in Luke's Gospel, Luke is also the author of Acts. The very first thing, the the inauguration of Jesus' ministry is found at Jesus' baptism. As he goes into the water, baptized by John the Baptist, and comes out, and then a voice from heaven breaks over the scene and says, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. And friends, Ecclesia, everything that Jesus does flows out of this declaration. That Jesus has nothing to earn, nothing to strive for, nothing to grasp onto. Jesus knows who he is. And this makes him free. This is my son, my beloved. And Paul will later unpack that if we are in Christ, everything that is said over about Christ is said about us. That we are God's beloved. Genesis 1, we are made in God's image, and yet in Christ, we are God's beloved, invited into the beauty and the dance of divine life, invited into the fellowship of Father, Spirit, and Son. This is my Son, my beloved. And Jesus, knowing his identity, then will proclaim throughout his life that I have not come to exercise my own power, my own authority, my own freedom, but I've come to express freedom by doing the will of the one who sent me. And you think about that fateful moment, that fateful night in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus is agonizing, alone, as his friends have fallen asleep, and he's praying to God, staring down the horror and the reality of the cross, and he says, God, if there's another way, if there's another way than what I know is to come, can we go that way? And yet, his resolve is the same, but not my will, but your will be done. You see, Jesus has called us to freedom, and Jesus has demonstrated what that freedom looks like. It is expressed in doing the will of the Father out of the identity and the beauty of who He has called us. Freedom is expressed in obedience, and this is counterintuitive to everything that we are told. This is counterintuitive to the cultural values of the age of authenticity. We are a people set free by God in order to live out of the freedom, in order to obey, in order to follow what Jesus calls the way. It is for freedom He has set us free. The second thing I want us to see is that many of us have accommodated our lives to obey human authorities. No, I'm not talking simply about federal or local government authorities. We have accepted a spirituality that has no expectation of God's power breaking forth in our lives. We've accepted the construct that life is all that it appears to be. Friedrich Nietzsche asked the question, who gave us the sponge to wipe away the horizon? You know, in many ways, people the people of God, because we don't have an expectation that God's power will break forth in our lives. We don't have an expectation of God's word going forth, bringing freedom. That we accept and accommodate our lives to the powers and principalities of our day. Dallas Willard describes being an apprentice to Jesus as doing what Jesus would do if he were you. And Jesus says throughout his life, 
Again, I have come not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. And so perhaps the most profound question that we can ask in this moment, seeing the power of this story, seeing the angel unlock the prison doors and sending Peter and the apostles to go forth and proclaim the good news about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, perhaps the most powerful question we can ask every day is, God, what do you want from me? How can I serve you today? How can I obey you? Because friends, as we've seen, that obedience does not lead to this mundane, subservient life where we're just always in this place of exhausting ourselves, breaking through our limits, just constantly being compressed into this like terrible life. No, it is for freedom that God set us free. It is for our freedom that we get to ask the question, Lord, what do you want from me today? Isaiah's you know, proclamation to the God in the temple, Lord, here am I, send me. That is freedom. It is our freedom that we get to proclaim the name of Jesus and it sets the captives free. What if Peter and the apostles would have stopped proclaiming the name of Jesus? What kind of freedom would have been robbed from the world? No, it is for freedom that God has set us free. And that freedom is a freedom to obey, to count the cost, to see that that life that God calls us to is the best life. And we see this manifest in the life of Jesus. And we see this repeated in the life of his apostles. You see, the end of this story is that the the authorities talk and they, they sort of deliberate what's in front of them. And they decide, they determine to have Peter and the apostles, and it just says this very casually, to have them flogged. And friends, being flogged was a very, very painful experience. They would take a leather whip and whip you 39 times, but the the scriptures don't focus on the suffering. But Peter and the apostles, upon suffering for the name of Jesus, don't walk away and say, we'll never do that again. That was not worth it. No, they rejoice and they count themselves just in awe. They're so stunned that they would be considered worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. You see, the life of liberty that God has often called us to is a life of suffering on behalf and carrying the burdens of the world. Doing that because that is the way of our Messiah, our Lord Jesus. And so, it is for freedom that God has set us free. We must obey God rather than human authority. And God's authority, His uh, his, uh, obedience is the, the way that opens us up to a life of liberty. But when we respond in fear, whether it be fear of bodily harm, whether it be fear of what people will think of us, whether it be fear of just being thought of as being weird or having opinions that are antiquated, When we respond in fear, we not only rob ourselves of liberty, we rob our neighbors of the liberty that Jesus so desperately wants to give to them. And it's simply expressed in the power of his name. That at the name of Jesus, there is freedom. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And that is not the, the, the confession and the bowing of a kingdom that is, you, you know, sort of dutifully accepting its ruler. That is who we were made to be. We were made to be people of worship. And that kneeling and, and confessing the name of Jesus is our negative tongue. It is the way that we speak and we behave the most freely. So the question for us remains. 
Will we, like our Messiah, say, not my will, but your will be done? Will we ask that explosive question, God, what do you want from me today? And it won't always be expressed in standing before the authorities and telling the gospel story of Jesus. It might be expressed in our, the way we love our kids, the way we love our classmates, our neighbors. But will we simply start with that question and see what might be possible? It is for freedom that he has set us free. He is unlocking the doors. He is making a way. Let us follow our good shepherd and our Messiah in his way. Grace and peace to you, friends. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.